We are Pro Cannabis Media. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another very special edition of In the Weeds with Jimmy Young. And I am so proud to be joined by a power couple of pot. And that is not something I came up with. Everywhere on Google I looked, I found, I found Chris Conrad and Mickey Norris, and that's what they were known as, the, the power couple of pot. And also <laughs> another little name, a little moniker that's attached to this, these two, is the godparents of California legalization. Are you guys comfortable with those nicknames? Yeah, another one they used to call me is the Uncle of the Hemp Movement because Jack Hare, they called him the father. And so I was actually at the same level as him. So they called me the uncle, you know. <laughs> I actually looked quite comfortable. One time we were, we were considered in a news article, the pot smoking elite. Part of the pot smoking elite. Yeah. So we don't know if that was intended as a compliment, but we took I, it. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't like anything attached to the word elite, you know? Yeah. Well, they just say the elitist. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> At least that. Who needs that? Elite. Maybe right. not. <laughs> so um, I, know, I know your story, and Mickey, you and I talked a little bit about this before, how you met at a uh, anti-Ronnie Reagan's rally uh, back in the day, and, and then you decided to spend some time together, and before you know it, you've got yourself a life history. Uh, uh, but everything that you guys have experienced has really been about doing right by your fellow man, uh, trying to right a lot of the injustices in the world. Accurate? Yeah, that's pretty much so. Actually, you know, because I, 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 I was very young in the 60s, but I got that civil rights. Uh, I was actually, the first thing I did was form an organization called the Anti-Ku Klux Klan. And to tell you the truth, I thought we had pretty much won that one until Trump became president. And then it turned out, <laughs> no, they were still there. Uh, but likewise, um, you know, so I worked in the Vietnam era. I, I worked on a lot of social justice. I, you know, I wasn't a big part of the civil rights movement or anything like that, but I was much more active in the anti-war and the peace movements and the environmental movement and the anti-nuclear movement and, and all sorts of local campaigns. And then uh, we just, I just kind of uh, came into the cannabis issue um, on a, some, somewhat of a whim. I got in an argument in 1988 after working with many groups and coalitions for social justice causes and environmental causes. Uh, we were at a victory party. I, we were smoking pot out in the parking lot. And I said, well, what? let's do something about legalizing cannabis. And uh, everyone told me that it was impossible. It will never work. They, actually, what they said specifically was, what will happen? You will destroy your reputation. You will be seen as a laughing stock. And, uh, you know, you should never even approach that. So, of course, I took that as a challenge. <laughs> and, uh, and so I wrote down, I said, well, I bet you guys I can come up with a strategy to legalize cannabis. And so I did. I, I did the Business Alliance for Commerce in hemp, which is one of those things where in retrospect, it looks obvious, but at the time it was just me saying it and everyone laughing at me, which was to separate the issue into industrial hemp, medical marijuana, and adult use, including sales, and fight for them independently, but yet always together. And so uh, that became my strategy. And, and uh, working from there, you know, it just, just kind of took off way beyond anything I, I was expecting to, um, partially because I didn't really know there was a marijuana legalization movement out there in 88. I couldn't find it, you know. I, I knew where the peace movement was. I knew the environmental movement was. I knew all these other movements were uh, the anti-nuclear movement, but I didn't know where the, the marijuana movement was. So what we did, we just launched it out through these other organizations 
uh, that I was working with. And then, so it's like funny because I call it the other, the, I know somebody syndrome. It's like I would show it to somebody who was a really qualified actor said, here's my strategy. What do you think? And they would laugh. Ha, ha, ha. That's so silly. But I know there's somebody who's really be interested in that. And then that person would get a hold of me. So I built this whole network of the, the people that the people I knew knew. <laughs> right. And then it spread out and we connected with the actual, uh, the normal chapters around the country and stuff. And, and it really moved. Right. And in California, was it 95 or 96 that uh, introduced medical legalization? It was 96. And in fact, that was the year I called all these people. I, I said in 88, I bet I can come up with a strategy. And I called them up and I said, I need to call in that bet. We're getting it on the ballot. And it turned out they didn't even remember it. It had changed my life completely and nobody else even remembered the bet. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Um, it was on the ballot. And here we are just weeks after the election that just will never end, although I do think it is finally ending, <laughs> let's just say, and moving ahead with the change that both, that both coasts, I think, are very happy about, at least Massachusetts and California. Uh, and I'm amazed at the role that cannabis has played, not only in this election, but in the other uh, five states that voted it in for adult use, recreational use. And and sales. And uh, did you think when you first started in California as, you know, one of the lone start states to get it going, uh, that we'd finally 15, 25 years later, still be fighting this fight? No, I, I thought it was going to be over. Actually, I thought 96 was later than I thought. I thought we'd have this wrapped <laughs> up 94 or 95. Uh, <laughs> and at that point, we realized we were not getting any support from any legislators anywhere. It was up to the voters. Uh, and we had started the uh, California Hemp Initiative in 1990. And so we had spent the previous five years training uh, petitioners. So when it came to the Medical Marijuana Initiative, we had a lot of people uh, who were already trained to do the petitioning. And then we got the inrush of all the medical marijuana people. Plus, we got money behind us and a professional campaign. And that's how we got over the top. But I really thought it was pretty much over. You know, I, I say that, but I, I got to admit, when I read the language of Prop 215, the medical marijuana, I immediately told them they had really messed up. I said, you guys really blew it. Because it said that uh, <laughs> people could obtain marijuana, but did not say you, anyone could provide it. And I said, to obtain without being able to provide is a meaningless word, you know, there has to be somewhere to get it. And I thought that was a fundamental mistake they had made. And, and of course, it took us another seven years to get the legislation to give us a collective system. And then another 20 years before we got legal with all sales. And, and, and um, going out on a limb here thinking California has had a few issues since they opened up their recreational use or their adult use uh, regulations. Uh, there have been a lot of lawsuits and there's been a lot of disagreement about the direction of the industry. Um, what's your view on what's going on in your state now? <laughs> <laughs> the one thing I would say is about the lawsuits. It's a very funny thing because I, I say we spent the first, you know, we worked on this for like uh, 28 years before we got to it. And I said that we spent the first uh, 20 years trying to convince America that it was okay to legalize marijuana and the last eight years trying to convince the pot community that it was okay to legalize it. Every time we would pass an initiative, one of our activist friends would say, oh, it's not perfect, I sue. And, you know, and over again, we, we got a lot of loose lawsuits for people who felt that they need to be more open you know, uh, they said, they shouldn't, we shouldn't have any taxes. We shouldn't have any regulations. We should be able to do what we want. We shouldn't have to pay income tax on the money. And we're like, that's ridiculous, you know, but, but this is the way they felt, you know, in the sincerity of their hearts and bless their little hearts. They made a lot, a lot of lawsuits on that stuff. What do you say, Nick? Well, you know, it's going along. It, it, it does have its flaws. I mean, and uh, unfortunately, um, 
it's not going swimmingly as we speak, but people are having access. There's still an illicit market. Um, the prices are still too high compared to the illicit market because of all the taxes and regulations and the hoops. And a lot of people are unhappy that uh, a lot of the small growers, the, the traditional farmers who were providing uh, the consumers all these years haven't been some of them have gotten into the into the regulated uh, system the license system mm -hmm. but a lot of them are you know they, they were not interested actually in pursuing that route they had their 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 lifestyle like that and so you know it's sad to see that some of them can't make it in in this market to today and a lot of people have, you know, lost their, their livelihoods as a result. And in fact, Chris said, we've lost our livelihood. <laughs> Chris was a marijuana expert witness in the courts through all these years. And people were saying that, uh, but we, we consciously worked our way out of this career. We just wanted to, to help keep people out of jail. That was one of our, our main goals. And... I'm happy to report that that arrests are way down from where they used to be, and Chris hardly has any work anymore as an expert in the court. Now companies are suing each other, and that's the kind of lawsuits that are happening now, and he's not really interested in taking sides like that. Mm -hmm. But uh, it, I'm excited that California has spurred on so many other states and internationally other countries looking to looking to the u.s as as models but um i'm hoping that they'll come up with something that's more fitting to their cultures and their you know what has developed as their uh cannabis culture and industry i think it's curious that if you look at um canada uh, uruguay they set 18 as the age of consent and now uh, i think canada's 19. i think she may be right by I the way actually i like 19 because you're not in high school very few people right. in high school at age 19. 18 right. has that problem so it should have been but uh and uh what's the other country that's just talking about legalization and setting mexico Mexico. Yeah. Mexico. So it's like, we're the only country that seems to have to be 20 or 21. And, and I've actually gotten to debate with people where they say, well, you know, your brain isn't fully developed until you're 25 or 26. And so therefore you should have to wait to then to do anything. And I think number one, we don't say that for anything else at 18 year adult for everything else. So all of a sudden it's like, when it comes to marijuana, you're supposedly not. But the other thing is that cannabis is not like the other substances. It, you have an endocannabinoid system and that matures around age 15. So the whole idea that there's some benefit from waiting another six years or another 10 years, uh, it doesn't make any sense. Your endocannabinoid system, to the extent that if that was your concern, 15, 16 is old enough for people. Now, society's not at that point, but I actually think that parents should be able to smoke with their child uh, if they're 15 or 16. I think that's old enough. And, and what I'm finding, and we talked about this uh, literally this week on one of our other shows, um, that it's a great time for parents to talk to their children about cannabis and other adult use products. And the one I always go to, first of all, I don't like to refer to cannabis as a drug anymore. It's a plant. It's plant medicine and it can be used medicinally and it can be used recreationally as well. But you know what, for the most part, it does interact with your 
mind with your endocannabinoid system. It balances our neurotransmitters. It helps us deal with our stress and our anxiety. And God put it on this earth for a reason, because if you look back at history, uh, I use this fact all the time, in the 1920s, US medical doctors wrote, I believe, 3 million prescriptions for cannabis, <laughs> legally, in 1920. But of course, we know what happened in 1937 and all that. Um, exactly. I, I want to get back to something you guys talked about a little bit, uh, and I've done some research on it as well. Um, looking at the use of the plant and discerning what truly is a medicinal use of the plant versus a recreational use of the plant. And I, I do see uh, uh, factions forming inside the cannabis advocacy world um, we, where the first step is we'll get a medical program going, then we'll decriminalize it all, and, and then eventually we'll go to adult use recreation, where the focus should really be on educating the public on how to use this plan. Agree or disagree? Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, I think that um, one of the things that we found in California was that, uh, and, and again, I'll invoke my uh, my old friend Jack Herr, that when we were trying to get medical marijuana initiative, Jack Herr, uh, I, I, would you be familiar with who he is by any chance? I mean, yeah. what, your audience. Okay, oh, yeah. he's the author of The Emperor Wears No Clothes, which I co-authored with him, by the way. Uh, designed and edited and collaborated, I just say that. But in any case, when we were trying to get medical marijuana on the ballot here in California, Jack was actually opposed to it. And uh, the reason he said was, be, and that was tricky because we were, had worked on these uh, petitioners, we had trained them together. So now I was saying, let's move to medical and he was opposing that. Um, but the thing with it was, is that he said that if we legalize medical use only, that it would create a, a privileged class of people who would then want to retain their privilege and then oppose the actual legalization effort. I disagree with him. I said, we'll get those people on board and in a few years we'll be back. I found out I was wrong. Uh, they did. They, they were very jealous. In fact, that we went to conferences where they would say, us and them, we are the patients. You know, we're pure. We need it. You guys, you want to smoke it for fun. I'm like, you know, we're the ones fighting for you guys. But yet, why are we us and theming when we're all cannabis consumers, you know? So this whole idea, there was a pit, there was a period in the hemp movement and the medical marijuana movement both where they pitched themselves against adult use. It's like, we're not, we're hemp, we're not marijuana. Uh, we're medical marijuana, we're not adult use, you know? And so uh, that was the thing with my three projects all simultaneously. So I was able to absorb all that, deal with people who only wanted industrial hemp, only wanted medical marijuana. Uh, and then spring everybody to try to get together that point we were together. And it was really difficult, I got to tell you, trying to keep the three groups together. In fact, they weren't really. They were parallel groups, and we would periodically connect and then branch off again. And I'm still hearing it now. I'm hearing cannabis advocates uh, not happy with the decriminalization platform that the Democrats put out there during this presidential election. It's not far enough, you know, and all this. And I'm like... <laughs> Are you kidding me, guys? Look back 12 years ago. Look back 20 years ago. <laughs> We've come a, such a long way. And by the way, isn't the plant about socialization? I mean, I don't know about you guys, but it was a bonding experience to be outside and passing a joint with others. And I mean, a diverse group of others. It, was a, it brought people of all kinds together. Doesn't it? In fact, I'm really glad you mentioned that because I, for my whole life, people have always said to me, it's like, oh, it's so hard to meet people and so forth. And it's like, you know, I found, I've always found it extremely easy. You walk somewhere, you light up a joint, people come over to you <laughs> and they're usually really nice people, you know? Right. So, right. But, so I think it was tremendous. Everywhere around the world we went. In fact, one of the scariest places was in Turkey. 
because uh, you, you know it's like you know have you ever seen the midnight uh express or that yes. thing? Maybe, yeah yeah uh-huh. then we were in turkey it's like somebody says you want to smoke some hash it's like i don't know if we do or not <laughs> but we did yeah i was gonna say and i've heard the reputation of turkish turkish hash and you could probably tell me uh the reputation lives up to it no it's no we've got much better hash than oh, really? what we got that day i mean i don't know how typical that was but that guy's hash was really bad <laughs> We had just come from Holland, though, you know, so it was like, you know. <laughs> and, um, but the and, crackdown there was so severe. I mean, it's a very, it's a, uh, you know, it's a totalitarian regime over there. And, you know, you just have that. That's the way you've, it is, you know, and you still deal with it. But right. what, is, what is recreation anyway? I mean, if we're talking about anti-stress, are we talking about having fun and enhancing our lives and the quality of life issues as well? To me, it's also a matter of equal rights. I mean, this whole thing is a matter of equal rights. I don't think that that people who, who enjoy alcohol should have any more rights than people who enjoy cannabis. I mean, we're just, we're good people. We deserve the same rights as they do. And as long as you uphold your responsibilities to your family, to your community, to your society, you know, pay your taxes, work, do, you know. We distinguish between, um personal use and religious or sacramental use based upon the intention of the person who's using it. You know, you might have a, a very similar experience, but if your intention is actually to come closer to a deity or to the planet or to each other, whatever that, however you use a sacrament, then that's intentional. When it comes to medical use, it's a little trickier though, because I've known people who didn't realize they were using medically. They thought that, oh, I'm smoking a lot of pot. I seen you smoking a lot of pot. And then when they stopped, they realized they can't sleep as well, that they're in more pain, uh, you know, all these different things. That, and I believe that they were using cannabis to actually medicate for those things before they knew that it was a medicine for them. And then eventually they realized, oh, this is actually – but this, that, that's not a matter of intention. It's a matter of benefit. Right. And, and, Mickey, you actually brought this up, and it is something I rail about all the time. I, I quote uh, Bruce Barcott, the editor of Leafly, the author of Weed the People. When he went out with his friends who worked for the ACLU and they explained to him this is not a drug issue, this is a civil rights issue. And we certainly have seen the statistics about how law enforcement was able to profile people of color, recognizing that, oh, I bet they have a joint on them. Let's go bust them. I mean, really? It, that's mm-hmm. that was really a danger to the public that someone was carrying a couple of joints and they've been in jail now for years and it that really riles me up that gets me so mad and i'm and i know uh, you guys feel the same way about that too for too long um law enforcement have targeted people uh, because of their race and then they just figure oh they must be smoking weed or they must have weed on them well prohibition even began with the you know with yeah. its racist roots and right. you know trying to uh, keep down uh, Mexican Americans and blacks in the in the jazz scene and the clubs and things like that and prevent you know the races from you know interacting with each other Ooh, you know, actually getting that. along and talking yeah, to mingling each other. Ooh, not that right yeah <laughs> but a lot of these problems that we're seeing today look at look at Brianna Taylor I mean. Her, her, and this is all drug war related because, you know, when you talk about, and if I get into the drug war, I'm talking about all drugs, not just cannabis. And we do have a project called Human Rights in the Drug War, which focuses on this very aspect. But even the Breonna Taylor, the the premise for even 
interacting and coming to her home and allowing that the the police to come in on a no knock search warrant is part of the the way that the drug war operates because they don't want people to get rid of the evidence before they they you know before they can bust them right. and you know so many of chris's cases started with you know traffic stop because that was a good excuse to get into right. people's lives, make arrests. And a lot of times, well, I just didn't even believe the cop. The cop would say, I smelled this gram of marijuana in a jar in the back of the trunk. And you know they didn't. And, you know, and that's one of the things that I got to do as an expert witness in the court was to explain, well, Your Honor, in order for someone to smell the odor, the air has to move the odor to them. And if it's in a jar, it cannot get out of the jar. So therefore, the cop is not telling the truth. You know, so, so uh, we spend a lot of time in court uh, fighting over those things. And finally, in California, we've got a law now that says that the odor of marijuana is not the basis uh, right. for a search. But um, even that, we even after we pass that law, we still have to go to court and fight and prove that that's really what it meant. You know, police mm -hmm. uh, said they didn't understand it. Crazy but it's stuff. still going on today. I mean, look at yes. we still have people in in jails and prisons across the the country for for marijuana. Their lives are currently, you know, like even in danger. I mean, with the the COVID nineteen there and in those kind of situations can spread and it it could end up being a life sentence for. Right. or a death sentence for, for yeah. some of these people as a result. Uh, so we don't think that people belong, deserve to be in jail. The death sentence yeah. idea, that's something that reminded me of us. We, we knew a guy who was sentenced, he was from Oklahoma, James Geddes. He was sentenced to like 63 years in prison for, is that what it was, or 93? Anyway, basically. Yeah, I think it was 90 years for five plants right. in Oklahoma. And so, you know, eventually yeah. through our work and, and others, we were able to get him out. But he came out, he was so scarred. Uh, you know, with the PSTDSD from the PTSD from the experience and so forth, that he wound up committing suicide after a while. So it really was a death sentence because he could never get his life together again. And then, you know, just think what it's like for these people who've been 28. I mean, he was like 15 years in prison or something like that. Or, you know, but I mean, somebody like after 28 years in prison, you come out and you try to put your life together. You know, that's that's almost impossible. I, I so much honor those guys who at least make the effort to try to get their life together. It's it's a terrible thing. And I'm, and I'm guessing you guys are on the right side of the fence when it comes to prison reform in the first place. Um, I, I, I'm not a big punishment guy. I wasn't as a parent. I believe in consequences, obviously. Uh, but, you know, setting these boundaries, they have to be fair boundaries. And, you know, as a child, your job is to push up against those boundaries to challenge that. And, uh, we somehow or ever have taken that punishment, even though we've taken corporal punishment away from the parents, we haven't really imposed that in our reform when people break the law. And obviously, uh, it, it's all about public safety. I get that. Uh, and, but, you know, 500, over 500,000 arrests for cannabis in even last year, and that's, that figure has gone down over the last few years. Uh, when I read that recently in, in one of those reports, I was, I was really was shocked. I, I can't believe that that's still happening, and it is happening. And, and I really do hope that uh, we're moving in a direction now where we can at least identify some of the injustices that uh, people have had, have we put in place here, and we can make these changes. And I'm, you guys, are you confident that that's going to happen? Well, uh, one of the things that we feel like people have to be, it has to be visible to people. Mm -hmm. Because, for example, after, before we uh, got involved with this movement, we didn't really know anybody who used medical marijuana. I didn't really know anybody who was in jail for marijuana. I thought it was like kind of a non-issue. I was just jumping into it as a novelty. 
because I wanted to make a point. And then as we went along, we started meeting more and more people whose lives had been turned completely upside down by the drug war. And then after we legalized uh, medical use in California, uh, you know, a lot of people said, well, that's all that we've got to take care of. But meanwhile, I, I was working as an expert witness in the court. I worked on 2,500 cases plus that's maybe one less than a tenth of the number of cases out there or way less than a tenth of the cases out there. And so in I California was, alone. in California alone. California. And so I had a very good idea. But then I would talk to my friends and say, well, nobody's getting arrested for marijuana anymore. And I'm like, I'm making my living defending people who are getting arrested for marijuana. You, know, you guys are telling me it's not happening. You know, it's like uh, because it, that's why we did the Human Rights and the Drug War Project, in fact, was to make it visible. You know, we, we didn't want because we were working statistics. Well, statistically, we should legalize marijuana. Statistically, this and that. Statistically, the number of people in prison. But we found out that if you had a picture of somebody said, this person is a prison, and this is why, because of this particular law, whether it's mandatory minimums, whether it's conspiracy law, uh, whether it's what whatever, just the marijuana laws, and you can say, look at this person. You know, th they're like you and their life is destroyed because of something that you probably did too smoking a joint you know right. and so uh, that's why we felt it was really powerful uh to just actually show the faces and bring you know i guess was it make just make injustice visible uh, if that's what uh yeah. gandhi said something along that line i like that um any um i know i've done this on my show i apologize for my gender and my race sometimes because you know, <laughs> being, being white I, I feel okay i was born this way but i guess that there is a privilege and, and it does take these kind of statistics and these stories to recognize how lucky i am and and grateful i am however it makes me really mad that there's others out there that have been targeted and more than i ever realized uh, certainly uh, over the last few months uh, because of what we've seen with the black lives matter movement i'm hearing more and more stories from people of color and even um, former friends if you will or friends still uh, from the sports world where they sit around they talk about uh, being targeted being pulled over and that's not something i you know if i if i run a red light or roll a stop sign i deserve to get pulled over but not just because of the color of my skin, which is something that black people have had to deal with their whole lives. It's crazy to me, crazy. Yeah, you know, I think I, I, there was a part of my life in the, uh, well, I started smoking cannabis in 69. So in the, in the 70s. How old were you? I was 16. Okay, I was yeah. 14 in 1971. <laughs> just saying. Yeah, right. You know, that's one of the other reasons I don't think this whole worry about we have to be 21 is I started smoking when I was 16. I never, it's been nothing but a positive in my life. So, you know what, I'm not saying I'm that unique that that happened. But one of the things that I felt like with that was that I, because I was in the, the hippie community and, you know, people, it was funny because people would say smelly hippies. I said, well, we, we take baths. What are they talking about? It wasn't two years later, I realized it was pot. They were smelling the pot fumes all over us. That's why they call us smelly hippies. You know, it made no sense. But, uh, but anyway, that, that, by being a hippie, I was targeted by law enforcement too. And so it kind of gave me this connection with my African-American friends that a lot of my other white friends didn't have because they were worried about the cops. I was worried about the cops. The other white guy next to me wasn't worried about the cops, you know? And so it kind of created a, a, a more of a relationship and understanding, I think, and empathy by, by being a target myself. Hey, Chris, Thank how you. Long it, Thank how you, long Richard was, Nixon. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I want to ask, how long, how long was your hair then, Chris? You know, my hair always stops at the same length that gets here. And oh, there it is. All right. Just the right. nipple, you know, like <laughs> halfway down my back. That's, that's the end. It just won't go any further. I don't know why. It just stops. Yeah. I, I used to tie it back in a ponytail when I played sports because I wasn't, I swear I was an athlete once. Anyway, um, I want to get into something. I want to ask you. What's that? Mickey Wilde. <laughs> 
Um, I want to ask you guys a question about something that I've noticed in uh, politics and in the movement over the last few years. And I'm interested to get your uh, impressions about this. And I'm, I'm of the opinion that the cannabis legalization movement still has a long way to go. Um, build, breaking down that stigma still has a long way to go. And now uh, another plant, fungi, has, has become part of it. And people are talking about psilocybin and legalizing mushrooms, and I believe uh, Oregon did. So uh, I get, what's your feeling about that? And, and are we losing focus when we bring in psilocybin? And doesn't that pay, play into the hands of the people who says, see, it's a gateway drug. First they legalized cannabis. Now they're legalizing psilocybin. Well, have you ever talked to Rick Doblin at um, Multidisciplinary Association on Psychedelic Studies? No. Uh, he would be a very interesting to per person to talk about this. But I had a conversation with him, and again, it was later on I talked to him about it, he didn't remember the conversation. Uh, but in any case, you know, he was saying, I was, we had done something where I was talking about, you know, the strategy and how we legalize cannabis, the political and social agenda strategy that we had used to accomplish that. And afterwards, he said to me, well, what do I think about for psychedelics? How can we do that for psychedelics? And I said to him, well, I think that the only way to do that is that first we have to solidify marijuana and then follow the same path, medical, social, gotcha. do it like that. And so, you know, it seems like it's unfolding like that. But we had the same thing in our conversation is, well, that, that, at what point do they say, oh, this is all uh, subterfuge so that you can really get all drugs legal? And so my answer has always been, why are these drugs illegal in the first place? You know, someone has to justify to me why we're destroying people's lives over the drugs before I'm going to say I'm not for legalizing them. And no one has been able to explain to me why we why it's a good thing to destroy people's lives over drugs. And so uh, that's where I draw the line anyway. Mickey, what's your I think people are starting to see the uh, the medical benefits from psilocybin. Right. I mean, it, it's been shown to, to help treat depression, end of life, coming to terms with your mortality on terminally ill patients and things like that. So, you know, I, I think there's a, there's a, I, I don't think that, that psilocybin is a super, you know, social drug, is it? I mean, it's not like a party drug or anything no, like that. No, I, so a lot of the, a lot of these other like psychedelics, you know, are more for, personal journeys and, and spirituality and things like that. Yeah, I guess people at Grateful Dead concerts where you know, everybody was taking acid <laughs> and doing stuff like that too and, and having a great time. Yeah, but I, uh, I had a great time at Dead concerts and I never dropped acid and I never did mushrooms. However, all my friends wanted me to. <laughs> they said, you would be a lot of fun if you did mushrooms. And I went, I'm not a lot of fun now? Come on, guys. <laughs> Let's go smoke another joint. I mean, come on. I mean, there's plenty of room here, plenty of room here. Um, uh, let me ask Chris a little bit about your work with Kamala Harris. Tell me uh, about that. And obviously, uh, you know, longtime attorney general, now uh, vice president-elect, and uh, really and truly in a terrific position, I think, to really become a historic figure that she already is one, but has an opportunity, I believe, to go to the next level too. What, what's your feeling about Kamala Harris? Oh yeah, I, my feelings uh, echo yours very much. So I, well, you know, the first experience that we had of meeting Kamala Harris was that we were uh, for the San Francisco District Attorney's Office when she was running for that office. We were supporting another person, Terrence Hallinan, and uh, but we went to her. You know, they had the debates, and we heard her speak at several times. We spoke to her, you know, and she kind of gave me the impression 
that she was more for us than she was going to let on. Kind of like, I'm not going to go there. She didn't say, I am there. She said, I'm not going to go there because right now, you know, like, for example, we said, well, what about other marijuana? She said, well, I'm not going to go there. Medical marijuana is, you know, where, you know, the things are. So she was staying within the parameters were there, but she never said, oh, I'm against legalizing. Actually, she did on Prop 19. <laughs> Somewhere down the road, say, she said it. But when we first met her, she didn't say that. Uh, and then she went for the, for the district uh, attorney's office and she brought, uh, she wanted to have a task force and I was invited to join the, excuse me, advisory group and I was invited to it. And the thing that really impressed me about it was, you know, we we're talking about the cops using drugs as a way of getting to search people and so forth and, and harass people. Yep. Mm -hmm. She said right away, you know, we had this meeting about, well, how can we uh, indicate so the police can leave alone the, the legitimate medical places, even if they can't stop them from going after other ones. And she was very clear. She said, the thing that we have to do is stop the police from interacting with them in the first place. They said that once the police start interacting with people, it just almost always goes bad. <laughs> but right. so she said, so while we were talking about when the cop gets there, the person can show them this. And she said, no, we have to stop the cop from even getting there. And so we were very much focusing on, on preventing that first, uh, uh, confrontation or whatever uh, that would then trigger these potential consequences. And, and that really impressed me a lot. You know, it was very forward thinking on her part. Uh, and the other thing I would say is that people would always say to her, well, Kamala Harris, she's very cagey politically, you know, she's like says this and she does that. But to me, I saw her take a very specific path. When she was the attorney general, she was more restrictive. When she became a state senator, she, uh, I mean, excuse me, the, the state attorney but she's a district attorney. She's very restrictive of what she would say. She became the attorney general. She became more open, but at the same time, she said, my job is to enforce the law. So if you want to change it, you have to change the law. And then when we did Proposition 19, for some reason, she felt that she should come out against it. You know, I, I don't really fault her as a political decision. Anyway, uh, but in any case, but then uh, as she became, when she became a senator, that's when she revealed who she really was in terms of this issue. And then when she became a candidate for president, she really let down the veil. So to me, I think that her political ambition has been a big part of getting her to this place. And, but it's been the opposite of a lot of people. A lot of people pretend to be liberal in order to get in and they turn out to be conservatives. She actually, I think, has, uh, was using the more conservative bend to get the votes. But then once she gets into power, she used her prestige of office and her, her role as a leader to bring the issue further forward so that the next step, she can then take it even further. Uh, I, I have tremendous respect for her. I think she's, uh, uh, as a politician, as a statesperson, and as a human being. I mean, I haven't sounded, found anything about her. You know, yeah. She's a politician. She has to play both sides of the cards sometimes, but at the same time, uh, she's always come out on the right side. Yeah. And I like the fact that she's not afraid to change her mind based on the position she's in uh, and the job that she's doing. And, and you know, sometimes you're right. Uh, your own personal feelings may get in the way of your political be beliefs. But once you are elected into an office, I think you're supposed to represent the people that you got elected, who elected you, right? Isn't that... Democracy works. <laughs> yeah, that's what I keep saying about our Senator Feinstein out here. She thinks that that she's supposed to represent us, but she's supposed to represent our positions, uh, and not just you know the fact that she's from California. You know, and uh, I've been very unhappy with her, especially with those hearings of uh, uh, the, for the Supreme, Supreme Court. Court uh, well, yeah. Harris became our senator the same year that we legalized cannabis in California, too. Right. So. You know, she, she, she took that on and, and she recognized that it was very a popular issue. And she's gone on in the Senate to, to sponsor the MORE Act, which, is, right. which would deschedule 
cannabis and allow, you know, allow yeah. legalization to go, go forward. I um, love the Moore Act, don't get me wrong, but really and truly, nothing is going to happen in Washington, D.C. until January 20th. I think we're, I think you've got to kind of, I mean, it, I've never, nothing good. Nothing good. And it's yeah. so polarized right now. The fact, and I'll say this again, I think people have heard me say this a million times on my show. The fact that the Republicans continue to count the word cannabis in the COVID Relief Act that the House has proposed to the Senate a number of times, and they continue to say, oh, 63 times in this bill, cannabis is there more times than jobs. And I keep saying to them, guys, don't you understand that cannabis is going to build jobs and put tax money back into the into society? It's like, where is the where's the block in their head? I, I it, it boggles my mind, guys. But I'm from Massachusetts. And people are home, and they're you know a lot of people are kind of stressed out. It's it's a oh, good time to have some stress relief as well. I mean, and and deal a, with and people a, are afraid to go to the doctor. And these, this provides a lot of relief for a lot of people. Uh, although, uh, and I'm not all doing it disagreeing with what she said. I agree with her very much. But I, I was thinking that uh, <laughs> as far as um, one of the things that I think has been the big problem, of course, has been Trump. Uh, part of it because a lot of pe pop people thought, well, he's, he's a, not a politician, so he's going to do something different. And I said from the beginning, there's no evidence whatever he's going to do anything helpful to us, which he has not. He did begrudgingly sign the hemp bill, and he did begrudgingly sign the First Step Act. And then he basically, you know, just to get credit, as far as I can tell, he, uh, he didn't really seem to have any reason for it. But uh, what, the way I see him, Trump is the way I saw the Vietnam War, that during the Vietnam War, we had 60, 70 percent of the population that were like avidly, the war is good. This is a good thing we're doing. So I was on the other side. I was taking the flak, fighting against the war, fighting for peace. And then uh, after the war ended, you know, people were, were some, somewhat dubious. But like five years afterwards, most people said, you know, I, I never really was sure about we were doing the right thing. And then 10 years later, they said, I was always against the war. Even the same people that I had been arguing with, you know, were telling me they had always been against the war. And I kind of feel like that's the way that the Trump spell is breaking right now. Uh, the, his father is going to get sick and tired of getting hit up for money all the time, especially when he can't deliver anything for him anymore. And that there's going to be a lot of people who are going to wake up from this dream and say, why did, why did people support him again? And then they're going to believe, I could not have supported that. I could not have possibly done that. So therefore, I must have been against him. <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. And so in, in 10 years from now, I think people, what they say about Trump is going to be very different than what they say in five years from what they're saying right now. Yeah, I hope so. And, and he's, he did a remarkable job about making it all about him and, and r rallying the people against him because people were like, no, that's not how it's supposed to work. You're supposed to be a leader, not all about you, you know, and, and it pissed a lot of people off to the point where we saw what we saw in the streets after, um, you know, with all the protests and stuff. And uh, I hope... I hope that the future, um, we will learn from the past and we will see what a bad example is and we'll be able to look at him as a bad example of a leader. And I think mm -hmm. that's another reason why uh, President-elect Biden did so well. And more importantly, more people voted in this election than ever before. Oh, so the POTUS who I don't even like to mention his name, guys, okay? He galvanized a lot of people to exercise their right as citizens to go out and vote against him. And I, and mm -hmm. I think that 
uh, is what will be his lasting legacy. <laughs> I don't know. My, you know, obviously I lead it the right, ah, excuse me, I lean the left way. Uh, <laughs> Massachusetts, what am I supposed to tell you? You know, I mean, that's just how we are here. We started the whole revolution. Remember that back in the you know, 18th century. It all started here. Um, yeah. but, but when you guys put a Republican in Ted Kennedy's seat, that kind of freaked me out about it. <laughs> and I, and are you talking about Scott Brown by any chance? <laughs> I think so. That's who it is, right? I went to Tufts. Yeah, right. He replaced Ted Kennedy, right? Right. I went to Tufts University with Scott Brown. I did his basketball games. I was the voice of the Jumbos, the Tufts University Jumbos, and he was a freshman shooting guard. And I know his daughter, Ayla, who's a doll and awesome, and I know his wife because she was a news person in Boston. But yes, it is Scott Brown. He was the ambassador to New Zealand uh, up until, uh, I, oh, actually, he's got a few more weeks to go because it's until the, the calendar <laughs> year. Uh, and I think we'll be seeing him back in this neck of the woods. But uh, a very interesting, uh, very interesting history. You know, you guys have lived through a lot of the same things I lived through. And I love talking to what I call age-appropriate peers, okay? Because <laughs> I, too, protested the Vietnam War. I, too, was certainly influenced by the hippie movement, even though I was, uh, you know, I, I was born yeah. in 57. So I was 13. Uh, I was uh, 12 when Woodstock happened. But so I you're probably the brother. same thing as, you have a similar experience to us that for most of our lives, we were the young guys, like the older people were there, we were the young, a little too young, to, we were hangers on, and then at some point, it stopped being like that. That's right. <laughs> but, That's you know, right. speaking of this, so this brings me to the point about the intergenerational aspect of, legal, of the movement, social movements in general, but legalization in particular, because when we first started this, I thought it was like a five-year campaign that would create a chain reaction and it would inevitably move forward in the same direction. What we found instead was that it's almost every time we would move away from a certain part of the movement and focus on another one that that part would fall in disarray and they would start fighting with each other and then we would have to like reinsert and try to bring people together and get them working together and so forth and so but we've worked with uh you know people who were the the marijuana legalizers in the 60s and the 70s and then we were the generation that came along in the late 80s and the 90s and then another generation came in the 2000s and so forth and so we've seen like three or four generations of people we're working with the grandchildren of the people we were originally working with and so forth and so you know i think in a way it seemed to me it should have happened really fast it would have been better in a lot of ways if it had but on the other hand it's been very rich experiencing all these generational changes along with people who have this common interest in social justice, uh, the environment, and uh, legalizing cannabis. Right. So, and you've got science and research leading the way. The, the discovery of the endocannabinoid system alone and how it interacts with this plant uh, really was the, the spur, the, the thing that the advocates really needed. Because despite what we've seen over the last few months, you, you're not supposed to be able to debate science, right? It is. Yeah. <laughs> right? Now you can test science. You can test it. You can test it. Absolutely. Hey, uh, Chris <laughs> Conrad and Mickey Norris, this has been great. I would love to continue to talk with you forever, um, but uh, I do want to wrap this thing up. I want to know how can people get in touch with you? I know you're still involved with a lot of campaigns. How do people get in touch with you Did, if, if you've resonated with anybody out there who's uh, listened to the interview? Well, uh, my, my personal website is chrisconrad.com. Clever name, huh? Actually, it just goes to show how old I am. I, I was able to get the, my name on the website. You but know, you were so smart enough to do that, though, Chris. Don't yeah, get right. Away from you, right? And, Come on. And we, um, the other one we have is uh, the, theleafonline.com, which is our news website. 
And uh, we really uh, like people to like, uh, you know, if you have some, we're not really in, we don't like to cover necessarily the business of cannabis. We like to cover the movement of cannabis, what organizations do, where the problems are, who's fighting it, what their strategies are, because that's what we're really about is empowering. You know, we call the power couple, but we like to empower other people. And so that's the thing that we like to be doing. And then uh, the other one is uh, Human Rights and the Drug War Campaign, which the website is, you know, we've been working on this thing for yeah. 20 years. So the website looks 20 years yeah, old. Yeah, we haven't done anything on it for a long time. There, there's other groups that have picked up the mantle and are, are working on the prisoner issue, uh, so we're happy with that. Right. But I would say the web, the, the email of case, C-A-S-E, like a court case, at chrisconrad.com, we both read that email, so that's a good way to do that, and you're saying. And then we have kanamaste.com, uh, if you're interested in getting, uh, exploring the spiritual and sacramental uses of cannabis, it's uh, C-A-N-N-A, M-A-S-T-E dot com. I, namaste with can in front of it. And, <laughs> I got uh, namaste. I, I do the yoga the thing once in a while. I meditate yeah, once dot, in a while. Dot org. I really do uh, enjoy that. And of course, uh, this magical plant has kind of paved the way for total enlightenment for all of us. And, and if you find out and you discover it, you will just see why there's so many people passionate about it, like you guys and myself. So I really appreciate mm -hmm. you taking the time, hanging out, talking coast to coast about cannabis. And uh, I appreciate yeah. it. And we look forward to keeping this conversation going. I have this closing line that I use. And I don't know, Mickey, did you hear me say this closing line when we talked last week? The whole closing line is, it's a whole new world of weed out there. Use it responsibly. <laughs> that's right thank you so much chris conrad and mickey norris for joining us on in the weeds remember again whole new world of weed that's that over to you there you go i appreciate that all the way i'll grab it there we go hey, thumb to thumb, right? thumb to thumb. Isn't that it, right? Isn't that how you pass it? all right guys thanks a lot i look forward to talking with you again take care day. We Talk Now, We Talk News, and In the Weeds are all available on most major podcast distributors like iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and our friends at clnsmedia.com and our flagship, cannabis.net. So subscribe, share, and like our videos on all the social media networks out there, including LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, The Weed Tube, and YouTube. Weed Talk and In the Weeds are two productions of pro-cannabis media supported by Revolutionary Clinics, one of the top medical cannabis dispensaries in the Massachusetts area, now with three locations in Greater Boston, two in Cambridge, and one on Broadway in Somerville. Rev Clinics has a patient-first mission. They will customize your needs as a medical patient with the proper titration and combination of strains, flavors, and products. Rev Clinics, where the patient comes first. We are Pro Cannabis Media.